As you're taking your seats, go ahead and grab your Bibles, and you can open them up to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, if you're newer with us, you haven't been here in the last little while, or maybe you're just visiting for the first time, we're coming to the end this morning of a mini-series that we have been uh, kind of walking through entitled The Culture of Redemption. We're looking at what it means to be uh, really a church that is committed to the Word of God. What are the defining characteristics and distinctives of a church and a people that are committed to the Word of God? And we've been marching through these six distinctives that you see on the banners beside me here. And this morning we come to the very last one, which is right over here on the left-hand side, my left, your right. And that is this strategic church planting. And you'll notice that the kind of the, the, the phrase underneath there is together and around the world. And we believe that this needs to be an important part of the culture of who we are. We believe this is what God has called us to do and who he's called us to be. And you'll notice that the, the, the verse that's attached to that distinctive is Matthew 16, 18. And that's a verse that um, if you're not familiar with, you ought to commit it to memory. It's one of the most important verses in all the Bible. It's the verse when Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he looks at them and he says to them, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it. It is the declaration of Jesus Christ that he is not only the founder of the church, the head of the church, he is the supreme architect of the church, and he is also the foreman of the church, the one who is ultimately building up his church. It reminds us that the church, listen, is not some human invention. It is a supernatural reality that is part of the plan of God. It is a divine institution given to us by God with the very promise that God himself, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, will build his church. This verse, that kind of foundational verse, reminds us, listen, that Jesus Christ had a strategy, a plan for building his church. He knew what he was doing and how he would do it. In fact, The very context of that verse reminds us that he is unfolding that strategy to his disciples. And he's telling his disciples that they are actually a part of this foundational strategy. Ephesians 2.20 will show us that it is the apostles and the prophets who are the foundation of the church. So Jesus, the head, the architect, and the foreman looks at his disciples and says, listen, I'm telling you right now that you, you my disciples, are going to be a massive part of the building out of my church. You, specifically the 12 apostles, will be the foundation. The foundation of the church through which the inspired word of God, the revelation of God himself would come, the revelation upon which every church would be built, particularly the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. The church as an institution, we're reminded, finds its beginning here. Matthew 16, 18. It's the first time Jesus mentions the word church. We're reminded, if we consider just for a moment, the distinctives that we've been looking at the past couple of weeks, evangelism and discipleship, that the two are intimately, intimately connected with this idea of the church. You see, discipleship and evangelism point not only to the spread of the gospel, but to the spread of the church itself. Where the gospel goes and where disciples go and are being made, so too goes the church. And this is in the very plan of God as he has strategically designed it. So as we just consider this idea of strategic church planning this morning, I just have three questions to highlight the importance 
of strategic church planting. And the hope is this, again, like in every one of these distinctives, that this becomes something that we embody and embrace as a church, something that we're excited about and something that we engage in and participate in, something that we believe that God has called us to. And I want to begin by asking this question. It's, it's really the most fundamental question. If we're going to be on board with this idea of strategic church planting, we have to first ask this question, what is the church? What is the church? I mean, it's so foundational, we will never be committed to church planting and the idea of pushing the church forward and across the world without a proper understanding of what the church actually is. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, we get really a very sweet picture of the church in a condensed way. The entire book of Ephesians has really been painting the picture of what the church is. We saw that this past ministry year. But here, in these three verses... What we see is the Apostle Paul giving to us three pictures, three metaphors, really to teach us what the church is and why it ultimately matters. The Apostle Paul says this in verse 19. He says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now I want to pull this apart really quickly for you in just a moment, but again, let me just remind you that in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus Christ uses the word church for the first time in the Gospels. He'd use it uh, only two other times in the book of Matthew, both times in chapter 18. It's important to understand what the word church actually means. You see, the word we translate as church means gathering or assembly. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And really what it does is it points to a coherent group that is united by a common cause or purpose. The word itself um, has no spiritual connotations in scripture in particular. In fact, it's used often in, in secular Greek literature just to speak of a group and a gathering. It's used in other places, even in the New Testament, to speak of a gathering of individuals, not the church as we often think of the church. But it's an important word, and it begins to form our understanding of what exactly we're doing here, what exactly this is, this thing that we call church. Maybe I can ask you this question to help you think through this from a biblical standpoint. Can you be a Christian and not a part of the church? Think carefully. Can you be a Christian and not be a part of the church? The answer biblically and and theologically is Yes and no. Let me explain that to you. You see, there's two aspects of the church that we see throughout Scripture that are important for us to understand. And again, this is somewhat theological, but it's incredibly important to understand this. There are lots of people, here's why. There's people today who believe they can call themselves a Christian and not be a part of the local church, to not be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. I'm saying, I don't need the church to grow. I don't need the church to be in a relationship with God. Me and God are fine. I don't need the church. So the question is, is that way of thinking actually biblical? Is it right? And the answer scripturally is no. No, it's actually not correct at all. You see, theologically, the word is actually used in two senses. One, it's used like this, in the universal sense. So we have what theologians have called the church universal That can be defined like this, the community of all believers for all time. 
the gathering or assembly, the, the multitude of people who are under the banner of God, who are children of God. That is the church in a universal sense. That means every Christian all over the world is part of um, this theological concept called the church, the people of God. Paul uses that, uh, the word church in this context, the universal context in Ephesians 5.25, for example, uh, where he says this. You can even flip the page if you want to look at it. It's on the screen behind me if you don't want to exercise at all today. Where Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, the church are all those that God has given himself up for to redeem by his blood. But there's a second aspect of the church that is equally as important. We have this universal understanding of the church, and then we have what theologians have called the local church which again is a very biblical concept, and that is this, can be defined like this, a gathering of true believers in a particular area or place. That's what we're doing right here. We are a local church. Now, we see this concept all throughout the scriptures. We see, for example, the Apostle Paul writing his letters to the church in Philippi, the church in Ephesus, and what he's saying is this, the gathering of believers in this particular location or place. So here's something important to understand. Every Christian is saved into the church, universal. Every Christian is brought into this this reality called the church. And then, listen, therefore, biblically speaking, must actively join and participate in the church, local. Get it? We're saved into the church universal, and then we're called to actively join and participate in the church local. Why? Why? Here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul uses these three metaphors to teach us why this matters so much, why this is so important, why the church universal and the church local matters. Now, just to be clear, and if, if you want more clearness, we're just going to go through this really quickly, these three metaphors. If you want to go in more, into more depth in this, go back and look up the sermon on our website that we preached earlier this year on this passage, a whole sermon on these three verses. For now, I'm just going to give you base, the basic points and the basic ideas so that we have a foundation to work from as we think about strategic church planting. Here's the first thing that Paul says in these metaphors. The church is the embassy of God. Excuse me, the kingdom, of God's kingdom. The church is the embassy of God's kingdom. And again, we see this as Paul uses some very particular language in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. You're citizens of a place. You're citizens of a kingdom. You're no longer wandering about without a home, without a locale. The kingdom of God is an incredibly important and theologically rich topic in Scripture We've looked at this in the past as well, but we understand the kingdom of God to be the place of God's rule, his rule over his people. And that is happening in one sense here and now as the king rules the lives of his citizens, us, his people. But it will happen in full when the kingdom comes in full, when Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, returns to rule and reign upon the earth, when he does away with sin, when he does away with death. An embassy is an important concept to grasp as well. You see, an embassy is a place in one country full of people who belong to another country. 
But the key is that even while they are in this country, the country that the embassy is in, they are still operating under the authority and the laws of their home country. And they're actually representing their home country to the country or the land that they are currently living in. See, so we are citizens of a kingdom. We are an embassy here. You can think of it kind of like this. The church is an earthly outpost for the heavenly city. We're, yes, living on this earth here and now, but we're not operating under the the earth and the world's laws, really. Not in full, only as they align with the laws of God. We're operating under the laws of our land, under the laws of our king and his kingdom. And in so doing, we're actually, as an embassy, Screaming out to the world, look, look, at, look at what it looks like. Look at what it means to live under the lordship of King Jesus. That's part of the responsibility of the church. That's part of what the church is for. We're showing the world what it looks like to submit and surrender to the true king, the king of all kings. We're showing the world what it looks like to live under the gracious, loving care of our savior and our king. See, it's here in this place that we are united by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is his death and his resurrection. It is the, the payment of our sins. It is the new life that's been given through surrender to him that unites our hearts together. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. It doesn't matter your background, your baggage. It doesn't matter, listen, the particular sins you've struggled with. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter the culture you may have walked out of. What unites us all together is this common reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe in a king who died for us to rescue us from our sins and to bring us back to life. Amen? And the way we live in here will show the world what that means and why it's necessary for them. It's a means by which, listen, God is attracting people to himself. The world will know how much God loves them by how we love one another. Now, secondly, what Paul alludes to, the metaphor he gives us is this. The church is not just, it's not just an embassy of God's kingdom. It's actually as well the household of God's family. And again, these different metaphors, they kind of begin to build out a theology of the church for us, a deepening understanding of why we're here, what the church is. He says, we're fellow citizens with the saints, and look at this next, and members of the household of God. He shifts that metaphor in such a beautiful way. Now, we understand what a house is. Every one of us uh, lives in a house, or at least has lived in a house, or can look at houses and understand what they are. You see, a house, though... The brick and mortar of a house can often tell us some things. It can represent status. It can represent prestige. It can tell us some things. But a household is something very different than a house. A household represents the the ethos, the economy. That's where actually that word comes from. The flavor. The culture. You see, a household represents intimacy, security and belonging. And that's exactly what the church is meant to be. The church is not just brick and mortar. It's not just a place to gather, as important as that is. It's what happens in here. It's who we are together. It's how we function together. It's what rules our hearts together. You see, that's why the word of God is so incredibly important in the church of Jesus Christ. A church is only as healthy and strong and stable as its commitment to the word of God, to sound doctrine, as we read even in Titus today and prayed through. 
church is only as strong as its commitment to teach, to believe, and to live out the word of God. The church is meant to be the place where we come together as a family. Now, some of us view church simply as a place to go, not a people to be involved with, but Paul here reminds us that the church is actually for our good, and what we see is that it's, it's for the building up of one another. Ephesians 4, as we saw uh, in the past couple of weeks, reminds us of this as well. This is the place, listen, where the truth of God's word rules our hearts. This is the place where the truth is taught. Uh, Paul says that this is the, uh, the, the, the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And as we commit ourselves to the truth, we see that the truth calls us together to grow together, to be built up together, to function together with all of our gifts and strengths and abilities through the power of the Spirit of God. Which brings us to the next metaphor that Paul uses. You see, the church is not just an embassy of God's kingdom. It's not just the household of God's family. It's also the temple of God's presence. Again, that idea of being strengthened together, verse 20, built on the foundation. There's the language there, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is all temple language in whom the whole structure being joined together, again, he uses body language now, pulling it all together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God dwells in our midst as a holy temple through his spirit. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to be in the presence of God, you had to go to the temple. The New Testament speaks of the temple very differently. There is a fulfillment aspect of the temple taking place right here, right now. The temple in the Old Testament was a picture of God dwelling with his people, his presence being amongst his people. And that's exactly what the New Testament says takes place when God's people gather together as the church. There is a unique way in which the spirit of God operates when we gather together as the redeemed people of God. In the new covenant era, his presence is no longer bound to a building, but to a people. We are the temple. And this is a great reminder, again, that the church is not just the building. That's what so many, uh, not only unbelievers think, that's what many Christians think. The church is just the place I go to on Sunday. It's not just a building, it's a people. We don't go to church. We are the church. And we gather on Sundays as the church, the Spirit of God filling us as a holy temple. Now, some Christians, what's really interesting, think that church is unnecessary, like I said. They think it's not that important to be involved in and a part of the local church. Some people jettison the idea of involvement in the church altogether. In fact, one study shows that 40% of Christians feel it's not important because they can connect with God elsewhere. 40% of Christians. But again... That all depends on what you believe the church is. And here, we're reminded through Scripture that it is the redeemed people of God who gather and are sent out as disciples of Jesus Christ. Again, church is not a place you go, but a people you go with. It's not an event you attend, but a mission you join. It's not a club that you're in, but a family that you're a part of. In Christ, we are citizens of God's kingdom, we are members of God's household, and we are the building blocks of God's temple. The church is instrumental in God's plan not only to grow us, but to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the only institution, think about this, that God has promised to build. Tim Keller says this, that Christians commonly say they want a relationship with Jesus. They want to get to know Jesus better. 
Then he says, you will never be able to do that by yourself. You must be deeply, I'm gonna emphasize that word, you must be deeply involved in the church, in Christian community, with strong relationships of love and accountability. Only if you are part of a community of believers seeking to resemble, serve, and love Jesus will you ever get to know him and grow into his likeness. God's church is God's glorious plan for reaching the nations, for revealing his wisdom, and for forming his people. So, let's go back to that question. Is it possible to be a Christian and not be in the church? When a person becomes a Christian, he doesn't just join a local church because it's a good habit for growing in spiritual maturity. He joins a local church because it's the expression of what Christ has made him or her, a member of the body of Christ. It's like baptism. You don't get baptized because it's simply a good habit or simply a good thing to do. You do it as an expression of what Christ has already done in you and who he's already made you to be. Being united to Christ means being united to every Christian. But the universal union that we all experience if we come to Christ through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection... That union must be given a living, breathing existence in the context of a local church. This is God's design. As a church that is committed to the Great Commission to go and make disciples, as we saw last week, as a church that is committed to evangelism, to spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it follows, listen church, it follows that we too must be therefore committed to the church. This is the essential starting place, and I just have kind of three questions to ask you by way of application. Three questions to ask you that you need to be considering in your life. If all that, you, that I'm saying is true, here's what you need to ask first. Are you philosophically committed to the idea of the church? Are you philosophically and theologically committed? In other words, everything I just said, do you see that in Scripture? Do you believe it's true? And are you committed to believing that with all your heart? That this is God's plan for building the church, for growing the church, that the church is the divine institution that God is using to grow you up and to reach the world around you. Are you, are you theologically and philosophically committed to that reality? That's the first question. If your answer is yes... That moves you to this next place. If your answer is no, come and talk to me afterwards, okay? We'll figure this out. And I, I mean that seriously in one sense. Our desire is for you to understand what is going to benefit your soul. And for some of you, maybe you're still wrestling through this. And, and by the way, that's okay. We're not looking at it exhaustively right now. We're just laying a bit of a foundation. So for, for some of you, you're like, well, I'm not quite convinced yet. I'm not quite persuaded. I maybe need a little more time. That's fantastic. And I would just say to you, come and talk to us. Come and find a leader in this church. We would love to share more of scripture with you to show you how important the church is in God's plan. We want you to get on board with the theology of it because here's where we want you to move to next. And some of you are here already. Some of you need to get here. Here's where it is. Second question, are you formally committed to the church? Have you formally committed yourself to the local church? Not just are you attending, but have you, have you demonstrated a high degree of commitment to the church by formally committing through membership to the church and saying, this is the body I am joining. This is the body that God has called me into. This is the body that I want to be served by and to serve in. Have you formally committed to the church? 
not committing to the church is the equivalent of um, living with somebody and never getting married. It's, it's a way of not fully committing yourself, of receiving you know, the vast majority of the benefits of the relationship without actually formally committing yourself and, and, and saying, I'm, I'm actually engaged in this at a deeper level. That's what getting married says, right? It says, I'm committed to you. I'm committed through the good times and the hard times. Does that mean you can never leave a church? No, of course not. That's not what we're saying. It does mean, by the way, be careful not to push the analogy too far. (laughs) There are valid reasons to leave a church. There are very unvalid and unhealthy reasons to leave a church. And that requires a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge. But here's the big idea here. You need to be committed to the church. It's for your own good, and it's the kind of commitment that Christ would call you to. And here's the third thing. If, if you've got that down, um, are you practically committed? Let me use the marriage analogy again for a minute. It's possible to be married to somebody, to have everything legally formalized, to be living in the same house, but to not practically be engaged in the relationship. It's possible to be present, but not really be present. And here's what you need to check your heart on. Am I truly present in the church? You say, what does that look like? What does that mean? Am I involved in the life of other people in the church? Am I serving with the gifts that God has given me in the church? Am I receiving the love, the care, and the accountability that the church provides? Am I sitting under the instruction and the leadership of the church? And am I coming alongside within the context of the church to help make more disciples like we saw last week? So where are you at on this spectrum? Some of you, by the grace of God, are just so on board of this and moving forward. Some of you are maybe logjammed somewhere in the process. Here's here's what I want to ask you to consider. Find yourself moving from one of these categories to the next until you're fully engaged and even asking the question, if you're engaged right now in the life of the church, am I engaged in, in every way I should be? Am I engaged in the best way possible for me and my giftedness? Am I working in the life of this church? Am I growing in the life of this church because of how involved I am and engaged I am in the work of this church? Hopefully, the idea of the church is clear in your mind now, so here's the next question for us to consider. Who plants churches? Who plants churches? I mean, whose responsibility is this? And for that, I simply want to maybe do a bit of a survey with you. I want to prove to you that the idea of church planting is a biblical concept, um, that it's not just some fad that we've grabbed a hold of. It's not something that we just think is a good idea. It's something that we actually believe is is incredibly biblical, and uh, and we want to see that in scriptures, and you should want to see that in scriptures. So I want to look specifically at Acts chapter 8 through verse 13 just to do a bit of a, a survey. We're not going to read the whole thing. We'll kind of drop down here or there. I just want to show you a bit of the pattern. You see, if the church is making disciples, follow the logic here, they are either calling them to join the local church, here's the two realities, if we are making disciples, we're either calling those disciples to join in the local church that we're a part of, or to join in a a biblically healthy local church that is near them, or if that's not available, we are working hard to help that become a reality, to help bring about a healthy and sustainable local church where people are going to be built up and grow and to be functioning like a a disciple of Jesus Christ in the best possible sense. So, if that's true, then every church must be committed in some way to helping establish biblically healthy local churches. 
doctrinally sound, gospel preaching, places where people are growing, maturing, making more disciples. Now, it's important to state that the church planting is described in the book of Acts more than it is prescribed. But that doesn't mean that it's not something we grab a hold of and we actually embrace as a model. I think in many senses we, we ought to, and I'll show you why. You see, it's implied as well, the idea of church planting, based on what we've just laid out, a theology of discipleship, as you saw last week, and a theology of the church, which we've just talked about now. And the book of Acts shows a pattern of church multiplication as the church, or excuse me, as the gospel goes forward. As it spreads, as in the plan, the strategic plan of Jesus Christ to move the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the outermost parts of the earth. You see the strategy here? It is intended to keep branching out you know, in these concentric circles further and further and further and further until the whole world has been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Until churches are all across the world where disciples are being made who are making more disciples. Where the gospel goes, so goes the church. And that's what we see out of being fleshed out in the book of Acts. Here's the big idea that you need to maybe embrace in this. Who plants churches? Churches plant churches. Churches plant churches. It's been said like this. The mission of the church is missions. And the mission of missions is the church. You follow that? Let me say it again. This is really, really helpful. The mission of the church is missions, but the mission of missions is the church. So if we're a church on mission, we're going to be concerned about missions, reaching the world with the gospel, making disciples of all nations, like Jesus said in Matthew 28. And that means this, that we're committed, the mission of missions and making disciples is actually the church, because every person who's saved and made a disciple of Christ is brought into the church. We're committed, therefore, to the church. And we see this early on in the book of Acts. The call to fulfill the Great Commission translates into church planting. Churches who are planting churches. The early church in Jerusalem was growing and being strengthened by the apostles. That's the first six into seven chapters of the book of Acts. Following the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, the church begins to experience unbelievable persecution. Stephen is killed for his faith. It's an amazing chapter as he recounts in chapter 7, the history of Israel, the rebellion, their hard-heartedness, and the plan of God he unfolds before them. But as he dies and after he dies, what we see is that the persecution and the opposition of the church begins to ramp up, and that means this, that believers are being forced out of homes, out of careers, and they begin to actually spread. They disperse around the, the surrounding cities, and when they, they move to different cities, they bring with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, and their hearts are so filled with joy and the knowledge of the gospel that they cannot help share the good news of Jesus Christ wherever they go. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, look at what it says. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And we see the fulfillment of the call for the church to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria being fleshed out here. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. 
In verse 8, there was much joy in that city. Ordinary Christians begin to disperse. Ordinary Christians like you and me, filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to confess the name of Jesus Christ and churches began to spring up into existence. Groups of believers gathering together, bound together by their unity in Jesus Christ. And what we see fleshed out here is that the Jerusalem leadership actually sent out Peter and John to verify and authenticate the work initiated by Philip. In other words, the key church at this point in Jerusalem has an active part in verifying and establishing the churches. Look at verse 14 in chapter 8. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Listen, the point is very simple. Here we see the church involved in fulfilling the Great Commission, but in establishing churches used by God. And this church planting was new and unplanned in many ways, unplanned by man, but definitely planned by God. It was the Holy Spirit that was instigating the birth of numerous daughter churches out of this one initial church in Jerusalem. In fact, look at Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It says, so that the church, so the church, excuse me, throughout all Judea, and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church is built up. The church is multiplied. And what we see here again in Gal- Galilee and Samaria and, and, and again in Judea, what's happening again is that the mu- church, believers are being multiplied and therefore the church is being multiplied. Local churches springing up in all of these new cities as the gospel goes forth. Paul says this in Galatians 1.22, just to give you this concept of the local church once more, and I was still unknown in person to the churches, plural, in Judea that are in Christ. Independent local churches springing up as the gospel goes forward, all of them in Christ, bound together in Christ, the Spirit of God filling them and using them. And then you move into Acts chapter 11, And the Spirit of God begins to push the gospel cross-culturally. In Acts chapter 11, verses 20 and 22, it says this, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And here's the important part to notice. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they, the church in Jerusalem, you following this? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. By the way, it was here, verse 26 says, in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. We see massive success and involvement from the church in Jerusalem. 
to help strengthen. They send a leader who is equipped himself, a godly man full of the Holy Spirit, the rest of this chapter goes on to tell us. And he goes and he exhorts them. And again, we don't know all that he explains to them, but we know this. He poured into them. He exhorted them to remain faithful. Surely he taught them truths that they were not yet aware of. He built up the church there. And from this new church plant in Antioch, by the way, the Holy Spirit raises up two of the best church planters in the history of the church. Saul, who had become known as the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, it says this. Back at the church in Antioch, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I want you to notice, notice this, that the approval and affirmation of the church comes primarily through the leadership of the church. For this venture here in church planting beyond the local church borders, plus what we see too is the accountability of Paul throughout the rest of the book of Acts, to his home church. Paul comes back and he reports to the leadership of his church. He gives a report to encourage the body in his church on all three of his missionary journeys. And what we see here unfolding is the clearest model for church planting in the New Testament. It is the local church that has the responsibility to plant new churches that are involved in some way, in some capacity, to plant churches. And I want you to see, too, that there is strategy here. At the early church, there's, there's Holy Spirit intentionality happening. The Spirit of God is strategically saving people, pushing them out, even through persecution, used by the Spirit of God to disperse people into the right places at the right time who are primed by the Spirit of God in those places for believers to be saved, to gather together, and to begin a work started by the Spirit. But what we see unfolding is that the Spirit of God combines with human strategy, where the church begins to think strategically, empowered by the Spirit, motivated by the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit. And Paul begins to map out some very strategic plans for church planting, places to go. Oftentimes, those plans are changed by the Spirit of God, moved in a different direction, doors open in one place and not another, driven out by persecution to the next closest city, but this focus unfolds throughout the book of Acts as churches are planted throughout all of Asia Minor in places like Galatia and Ephesus, as we've already looked at the book of Ephesians, and Troas, all throughout Europe in places like Philippi and Thessalonica, Lanica, excuse me, and Berea, Athens, and Corinth, and eventually Paul takes the gospel to the heart of the Roman Empire, right to the heart of Rome itself. And the phenomenal growth of Christianity described in the book of Acts was based on the principle of churches planting churches. And within four decades, churches had planted churches in all the major pagan centers of the known world. Four decades. And here's why this matters for us. Because we are a church that is committed to planting churches. We believe that this is actually God's model and God's plan, specifically for us as a church, but for the church at large. We're looking at who we are and what God has done here. By the way, we are a product of a church planting movement of another church who desired to fulfill the Great Commission by planting more churches who are making disciples. 
We look at who we are right now as a church, and by God's grace, we're very healthy and very strong. We're not perfect by any standard, and we have a long way to go in terms of growth. But we are healthy and strong, and God is at work in our midst. We are rich in many ways, in resources. We're rich in the resources of people. God has blessed us with people. God has blessed us with financial resources, uh, possessions, and money. We as a church are a part of a network of churches, the Great Commission uh, Collective, that is committed to this distinctive of strategic church planting. We have believed it so strongly that we have banded together with other like-minded churches who believe the same things in an effort to partner with them to fulfill this mandate, to strategically plant churches. I met with a group of these pastors this past week uh, for almost an entire day thinking about a lot of things, and, and one of the things that I was reminded of, we're sitting around this, this table, there's 10 of us pastors, four guys uh, Skyped in from other parts of Canada, BC and Alberta, and we're all talking about the, the mission that God has given the church and how we can be working together and resource each other and partner together, and I'm sitting beside a, a, a guy who has been raised up in one of these other churches who is being sent out to plant a church in Toronto, another church in Toronto, and two of the other churches in that place were, were teaming up with, with this other church and one other church to do this work of seeing God establish in the city of Toronto, in another place, a church that is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and is striving to make disciples and who too will be committed to planting more churches. That's what we're part of. Like this is, you just have to know this. This is who we are. This for us, this idea of churches planting churches is non-negotiable. You say, well, what about other, other mission strategies? What about you know, just going into neighborhoods and Look, We're all good with lots of other um, opportunities uh, to fulfill, other, other supporting of missionaries. We're, we're good with all of those things, but here's what you just need to see. We believe that our primary calling is to plant churches, like as a mission strategy to plant churches. That's our primary goal. We'll do a lot of other good things, but the primary thing we're going to be focused on is planting churches who are planting churches. Okay, so what does this look like? That's the third question. What does this look like here? Well, it looks like some of what I just described to you in, in terms of that meeting with all the other pastors, but I want to root this and ground this in, in the text of God's Word. So look with me at Acts chapter 14, verse 21 through 23. It says this, that when they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples. It's talking about Paul. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. Again, going back to the churches that they had already planted, and then home base in Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So, so they, they, they make disciples in one place, and then they, they backtrack from their missionary journey. They go back to some of the churches that they had already established in these places, including their home church, and as they go back through, they, they encourage the church more. They bolster the church more. They, they preach the gospel of the church more. They preach the word of God even more, strengthening the souls of the disciples, pushing them forward in the faith, reminding them of the cost of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And in verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed.
Paul used a variety of approaches to plant churches. He went to great urban centers. He started at the synagogues in the cities that he went to. He made disciples through kind of a, a quick strike evangelism strategy at times. He entered family um, or professional networks. He used public controversy. He debated the philosophical questions of the day. But, listen, he steadfastly held to two fundamental principles. On the one hand, new believers were always added to a local church where a plurality of elders led. They took seriously the call to establish and to appoint local elders. That certainly involved an in, in intentional equipping and training and identifying process where, where they would then lay hands on them and appoint them as the leaders of the church in those places. Paul would send Titus to go and do the same thing. A leaders affirming, equipping, and appointing other leaders. And on the other hand, the second foundational principle, fundamental principle that Paul held to, on the other hand, these churches were planted and strengthened by the teamwork of a number of workers. He was so committed to seeing these churches built up through a collaborative effort. We need to believe that this is part of our central calling as Redemption Church, that this is what God is calling us to do, and I want you to be assured that this is exactly what we are doing and what we have been doing. We are always going to be committed to church planting, and we always have been in our mission strategy. In fact, the, the very first kind of missions endeavors that we had in this church was to be involved in Nepal. Some of you have been around long enough to remember those days where we were working with Nepal, strengthening the churches there. For three years, we committed to going over to Nepal. Um, I was a part of a team of other pastors who developed a curriculum to help train the pastors there and the elders there and the pastors who were being raised up to go and plant other churches across Nepal. We worked through a very rigorous curriculum with these pastors, and, uh, and by the grace of God, the same curriculum we used has actually been taken and been used to further duplicate other leaders there in Nepal and actually in other places around the world like Africa. We were specifically going there, um, not just to do service projects as good as those things are, not just to build buildings as good as those things are, but to build up the body of Christ, to build up the leaders who are then going to be able to build up other people and then duplicate that process. You can be assured that this happened there, um, not just by me, but here's what I want to say to you, but by you. This is the teamwork aspect. You realize that I wouldn't have been able to go and do that without you and your support. I wouldn't have been able to go there to take time and resources to go and help train pastors who are now equipping believers and churches are flourishing all across Nepal without your faithful prayers, without your faithful giving, and, and again, working together in this work of planting churches. We all played a part of that if you were here. We finished our commitment in Nepal. We had a three-year commitment, and we believed that God was moving us in a different direction, and so we began to seek a more active role in actually planting a church, a more hands-on approach to planting an actual church, and so we saw the door opened up to us in Romania and in Yash in particular, and that's what we have been doing for the last two years, and we've committed for one more year to continue on in this process of helping to establish the church there in Yash, Romania, to bless them, to train them up. 
I've been there more now three times. We've had uh, almost all of our elders there. Other leaders in the church have been there, and our efforts have been somewhat the same. We've gone to strengthen the church. We've gone to build up the leadership of the church. We've gone to invest in the church, the infrastructure of the church, but more importantly, the leadership of the church. Again, you have been a part of that effort. You have prayed for those things. You have given towards those things. You have freed us up so that we can go and help in that work. And that is not a small thing. That is an incredibly important thing. Paul had the backing of his church family behind him everywhere he went. Barnabas did too. And the support they received, the encouragement that they received from participating in this mission was immense. And one of the means by which God grew those churches What a blessing it was to have Pastor Yosef here. Was that a few weeks ago? Doesn't it feel like it was last year or sometime? Just a few weeks ago, he was here, and you know, he preached the word of God to us, and, and he and his wife spent a couple weeks here, and it was just such a blessing to be with them. Many of you engaged with them, and they were able to share their hearts with you. We wanted to, to give you a, a sense of what God is doing there um, through your efforts, through your prayers, through your giving, through your participation. I hope you, you got a clear sense of that. You know, I'm very aware that I could stand up here and you could say, well, what's, what's happening in the church plan? And I could give you a bunch of data. I give you a bunch of metrics, and I could give you a bunch of measurable things, but I want to give you something much sweeter than that. I want you to see the heart of what's happening there. And so I just want you to watch this. This was sent to me. I'm very sure I didn't ask for this. This was sent to me um, just shortly after Pastor Joseph and his wife Paula returned home and spent some time with their church family. Hello, Redemption family. By God's grace, uh, we are back home in uh, Romania. And uh, praise God for that. Uh, we came back uh, refreshed by your love and prayers and uh, all you have done for us there. And this morning we had a great uh, service at church. God blessed us uh, through the word, through prayer. And uh, after the church, we met here with the small group leaders and we prayed for the new spiritual year. We just began. So uh, we wanted to uh, share with you our love. We want to thank you for your support, for your prayers uh, all of us here we love you we respect you and uh, we cannot wait to see what god has in mind to develop between uh, us for the spreading of uh, of the gospel here in yash uh, we prayed for our church we prayed for the plans we have made we studied the word of god and we are enthusiastic about the new year so all of us want to say Thank you, Redemption family. Amen. That, that's Acts 14. Do you see that? Like, that's what's happening. That's what you're a part of. That's what you're doing. Do you realize the boost and the encouragement it gave them to be here with you, to, to see, I mean, the conversations I had that you, you'll, you'll, you'll never be privy to because of the time I got to spend with Pastor Joseph. You have no idea the impact you're making in the lives of these brothers and sisters across the globe. You have no idea. And you have no idea how God is going to use your faithfulness, your commitment to this in the days, in the weeks, in the months, the years, in the decades to come, even the decades and the centuries that may outlast even our very lives. Church, this is what we're a part of. This is what God is doing. And I, for one, am thrilled 
God is building his church. He is. But make no mistake about it. He's doing it through means. He's doing it through you. He's doing it through me. By God's grace, he's going to do it through the church there in Yash and every other church around the world that is committed to the furthering of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are on a path in Romania there in Yash to develop the elders. Potential elders are in the works right now. We're raising them up. We're pouring into them. We're building them up. We have a plan in place and a timeline to get them installed as elders so that they can be an independent, autonomous church. We have a plan in place to help them become financially independent. They, as a church, have a vision to see the church built up so that they can then turn, you need to hear this, so that they can turn and ask the Lord, okay, Lord, what now for us? What do you want to use us to do, Lord? Where do you want us to plant a church? You have to understand, that's on their heart too. You say, so what, what should we be doing? Well, here's, here's what we should be doing as a leadership. Let me just give you that aspect first. We are praying, we are planning, and we are preparing. We're identifying individuals and opportunities that God may be calling us to be involved in and a part of. We are trying to work on equipping, training up, and investing in those that God places in our path who may be potential church planters or may be used by God to strengthen churches around the world. And we are wanting to send, send resources and send people to partner with other churches in our fellowship to form partnerships and intentionally begin to plant in places we see there is a need and we see God calling us to. There is strategic involvement and investment going on. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should be doing. First, pray. Pray. Pray for the leadership of this church. Pray for yourself, for a heart for the church. Pray for those God is raising up in our midst and in other places. Pray for opportunities the Lord will give us and has already given us. Pray for Nepal. Pray for Yash. Pray for us. What's next, Lord? Where are we going from here? What kind of a church planting endeavor are we going to be a part of after we're finished in Yash? Here's the second thing. Pray first. Give. Give of your resources. Give of your money. Give generously and sacrificially because God is taking those resources and he is using them around the world so that the gospel can go forward and people can be reached with the good news. Give of your time and your talents. Give of your homes towards hospitality. We were so blessed, Sarah and I, and, and just we were so encouraged. We, we had Joseph and Paula staying with us for 12 days. It was, listen, the, the thought of having people living with you for 12 days is very daunting, isn't it? <laughs> but I'll tell you what, we were so incredibly blessed to spend that time with them, to open up our home, and we, we honestly, we received the blessing more than I'm sure they did. Give of your time and your, your talents. One person contacted me a couple weeks ago and said, can I have the address for Pastor Yosef and Paula? I'd, I'd love to send Paula especially some encouraging notes from time to time just in the mail just to bless them. And I, can I just tell you that other churches and other pastors and other people and other congregations have actually done that for me throughout the existence and the life of our church. And I can't tell you the immense blessing that has been. Here's the third thing. Pray, give, go. Go. Maybe God is calling you into ministry. Maybe. Maybe God is calling you to a new work that he is starting, that he's calling you to partner with. Maybe God is just calling you to go on a short-term missions trip and to use your gifts and abilities in a way that would be honoring to him and a blessing to others. Seek wisdom from the leadership of the church, those people who are stewarding of their leadership over you and wanting to serve you and help you. Let them know your heart and 
ask for their help in figuring out what God might be calling you to. Listen, 13 years ago, 13 years ago, I was not a pastor. I was simply a disciple doing my best in, in feeble ways to try and make disciples. Just trying whatever I could and trying to honor the Lord. I was attempting to make disciples who maybe could go out and, and make disciples. But I'll tell you this, that in those early days of trying to make disciples, God began to grow my passion for the local church. As I was growing to see lost people saved and saved people matured and matured people multiplied, my heart grew for the church because I realized that this was God's plan to do just that, those things. Disciples are established and built up when churches are established and built up. So an increased desire for discipleship led to an increased desire to plant a church. And eight years ago, by God's grace, and there's a long story there, but God allowed us to come back and plant a church with the pursuit of making more disciples who would make more disciples, who would be a church that would plant more churches. And the reality is we're eight years old, we're strong and we're healthy, but our job is not close to being done. Just like healthy disciples make healthy disciples, so healthy churches plant healthy churches. And while not every church will play the same role in that, and it won't look the same way in every context, we all share the same mission. And the reality is we all cling to the same promise. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. May God use us, his church, as one small part of this great and magnificent plan. Father, we pray that you would do just that. God, give us a heart for your church, your bride, your body. God, it, it is our, our joyful confession that this is your church. You are the head of the church. You are the one we follow. You are the one who bought the church with his own blood. You are the one who called us and loved us. You are the one who has saved and redeemed us and washed us. And God, now you have called us to the pursuit of making more disciples and planting more churches. And Father, we just want to acknowledge before you, we are so fully dependent upon you to do this work in and through us. But God, we want to surrender to this. We want to be fully submitted to this. And so we're asking God that you would take our hearts, that you would subject them to your truth, that you would unite them, Lord, in this common purpose, this common goal. And Father, would you bless the efforts of your people as we pursue this in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.